All right, we'll get started. This will be the uh, last teaching in Ephesians. We will be going through chapter 6. Um, I've mentioned it uh, the past three times. This will be the last time I'll mention it, but I'd like to uh, quickly talk about the context of the letter in light of what we've gone through so far. And um, really, this is Paul's final words to the Ephesians. So we've established earlier that Paul was essentially the father of the Ephesian church. We had talked that on his second and third missionary journey, um, that he spent time in Ephesus on two separate occasions for a totaling about three years. He had spent more time in the city of Ephesus than any other city that he ministered in. There was one meeting at the end of his third missionary journey where he was in Miletus and he called for the elders because he wanted to get to Jerusalem, so he had some important things that we read last uh, week in Acts 20 that he wanted to tell the elders. We do know that Paul was on house arrest in Rome when he uh, wrote this letter to the Ephesians and he was awaiting trial. We surmised by the history that about five years after he last would have seen the Ephesians is when he wrote this while on house arrest. And we had talked a lot about the motivation of Paul was to bring further spiritual encouragement and truth to the Ephesian believers. Um, I didn't really think about it too much in the last three studies, but as I was preparing for this study, it was almost a little bit sobering or sad in a way because I just was thinking about at this time, I mean, you look at the missionary journeys, how many times Paul was left for dead. Um, He had gone through all of that, was in Rome, and, you know, he's in house arrest. I don't know what he's thinking or going through. But after all of that, he took the time. um, He had the care and concern for the Ephesians that he was writing this, you know, at the very end of his ministry, after everything he had been through. So, um, you know, the words that we're going to read tonight are essentially probably the last formal written words that he had wrote to the Ephesian uh, believers. So I just wanted to uh, keep that in context. So what have we learned? Again, a real brief overview. Uh, We learned from Paul's teaching in chapters 1 through 3. He wanted to remind the Ephesian believers, again, this is five years after he spent... We read last week, night and day, did I not declare, did I not withhold the uh, declaring the, the word of God to you? So he spent years with them, and he's reminding them in chapters one through three of the glorious provisions that they have in Christ Jesus. He had charged them to walk worthy of their calling. Remember, we had talked about that. He said, in lowliness of mind, in meekness. And then, you know, we spent the, the whole one study on talking about the one body. He had talked that there's one body, there's many members, and that each member is gifted and that you bring nourishment to the other parts of the body, and that's how we as the body of Christ grow. And then I made reference to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, talking about the gifts, that there's a variety of different gifts. And again, we don't choose the gift. We read Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives the gifts. There's different types of service of those gifts, and there's different measures of those gifts. And then the next uh, continuation, Paul talked in um, Ephesians, I think it was uh, 4, he said, we are to put on the new man. Uh, Remember we talked about it's like putting on a piece of clothing. And essentially he was telling the Ephesians, listen, you cannot conduct yourselves the way you used to. So he talked about a few things. He said, speak truth, not lies. He said, no more stealing, but they were going to work by the labor with their hands. He said, the speech that they uh, would speak and the communication needed to edify and minister grace to those that would hear. And then he talked about the interaction with one another, that it should be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. And then we moved into, he used Jesus as the example in Ephesians 5, and he said that we are to walk in the light, and we are to walk in love as as Christ is the light of the world, and he is uh, love. And we had talked often that, that in all of the chapters, you see that theme, he says, I want you to walk this way, I want you to walk this way, that that walk is the way in which you live. 
So we are supposed to live, in, you know, in, in walk in light and love. And then um, Paul warned against, he said, no fellowship with darkness. Um, I had made mention that the fellowship there means sharing company. That as believers, you should not be fellowshipping with darkness or sharing company. But, and we talked a lot about this, you are to reprove the darkness by the way in which you live. And then he moved into making sure that the Ephesians would walk circumspectly. And we talked that's walking with precision and accuracy. And, you know, part of the reason he said um, is because you need to redeem the time because the time was evil. And he said, you need to understand what the Lord's will is. And he said, to do all of this, you need to be filled with the Spirit. And we had talked about um, in, the, in the Greek there, it's a keep being filled. And then we had talked about three of the results of when you are filled and walking in the Spirit is you will have joy, you will have thankfulness. And then we talked about, uh, I think it's verse 21, it talks about at the end after that, he says, submitting yourselves one to another. And then we moved into the first of the three relationships that Paul talks about. Um, the wife and the husband. And we finished the last study there. So preview quickly for this study, we are going to talk about the second relationship. So it's going to be the responsibility of the child to the parent, and then the parent to the child. And then we're going to talk about the servant, or for our purposes, we'll talk about the Christian worker to the master or the boss, and the master responsibility to the servant and then we're gonna uh, there's there's a shift there real quickly uh, Paul now shifts to talking spiritually about the armor that the Ephesians were going to need and then he finishes it up with a um, you know conclusion of his greetings and wishing them uh, but he the the point in the end is he's really emphasizing uh, prayer so oh before we get started, I wanted to take a, um, if you want to turn to Romans 12, verses 1 through 21, I'm going to read the entire chapter, because you will see a lot of parallels. This um, sums up all of, all of the chapters that we have read so far, but the thing that I want you to just remember when we're reading this, and the, the key verse is um, in... I don't have it written in my notes. Uh, verse 2, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The reason I, I, I want to emphasize that and read through these scriptures is before we get into the next relationships, we need to realize, again, with all of Paul's encouragement and instruction, we need to realize that our mind needs to change as a Christian when we get involved in these relationships because we can no longer operate or have a relationship with a, a child, a parent, servant, or master as we did before because we're new creatures. So let's just read chapter 12, 1 through 21, and let the word speak for itself, and then we'll start our study. Chapter 12 of Romans, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dismulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectioned 
one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Very exhaustive list. Um, and if, if you look at what Paul is charging um, in Romans uh, believers to do there, that is absolutely impossible if we are not regenerated and being filled with the Holy Spirit and our mind is being renewed. It is impossible to do what he's asking to do because that's a total transformation. And I read that because that's what I, I want us to keep in the back of our mind because we're going to be looking at relationships, Paul writing to the Ephesians, and he's telling them, obviously, they lived however long they lived without Christ. They get saved. He's telling them, as Christians, what their relationships should look like. They needed to have a transformation of their mind because they lived and, and related to other people in a certain way. Now they were going to have to uh, change because that's not how they needed to live as Christians. So I just felt that very important as a uh, backdrop uh, to the study to read that. So the key aspects to consider when approaching these relationships that we're going to talk about tonight, they're different than the way we related before. Again, we were, if, if we were saved and we had a wife and we were a worker and we had a child, we probably followed humanistic uh, ways that were passed down by school, our education, by our parents, but it wasn't predicated on this. Okay, so when we become believers, when the Ephesians became believers, they needed to now be relating differently, renewing that mind in according to the new man, not the old man. So I think it's very important that we need to realize that, you know, as the Ephesians were being instructed by Paul, we're being instructed on how we should conduct these relationships. Now, you will see, on going back to the, the husband, wife, and the children, and the servants, you will see that there's always, on one part, there's a, a submission. Okay, there's a submission on the part of the wife that we discussed last time. We're going to look at the submission on the part of the uh, children to the parents, and then we're going to look at the servants to the master. But conversely, there's also... The authority role has to be exercised in a proper manner. And, and you see this, we'll expound on it, but you see this in the text. Wives submit to husbands, but the husband in that case has the authority. What is, what is the husband if he is operating and using his authority in the right way? What is he doing? The scripture says he's to love his wife like Christ loved the church. Fathers are to treat their child in such a way that they easily will obey, and masters should be treating their servants with kindness. So it's not just a one-way relationship where the, the one that is supposed to be submissive, that that's just what they do. It's also tempered with the way that the person that has the authority in that relationship, how they are treating um, the other person. So... Essentially, if we, if we take what we read in Romans, all of the, the scriptures that you know, Jesus talked a lot about of it, Paul talked a lot about it, and in Ephesians, they're talking about the one body being filled with the Holy Spirit and joy. If you take all of that up to the relationships that we're talking about, essentially, everything that um, has been taught should be 
the motivation should be the instruction for how we are to now conduct these relationships. So we'll start with the child to the parent. And we'll read Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. So that is the responsibility of the child. And I was talking, uh, in context, it would seem he's talking uh, about a child who is a believer and how they are to relate to their parents. Um, the obey there means to listen attentively or to uh, con- conform to a command. Uh, and in the Lord, it can mean two things. As I, I had checked many commentators, and, and, and some of them believe when the, the, the words in there used in the Lord mean that children, you, you are supposed to take instruction. You are to listen to your parents as long as the parents' commandments or instructions are in accordance with what the Word of God says, what the Lord says. And then the, the, the second um, the second thought there that a lot of the commentators, when it says obey your parents in the Lord, means that you're, as a child, you're obeying your parents because of the Lord. And when we get to the other, the, the, the servant master, you will see in that particular relationship, it's very clearly, you don't, you're not obedient to your master because of your master in who he is, but you do it because of the Lord. So I tend to lean towards that, you know, the child is to obey uh, because of the Lord is why they are to obey. And, and then and Paul says that this is right. You know, he just simply says, this is right for you to obey your parents. And, and the Greek word there, right, can also mean... Um, by implication, it can mean uh, to be holy. So he's just saying, this is, a, this is a good thing. This is a right thing for you children to obey your parents. And then uh, in chapter, or verse 2, he talks about the honoring. And this would go back to Exodus twenty twelve, where we have the commandments. Um, and the honor there means, I, I like the way uh, the, the Greek explanation was, to fix a, val- a value upon something or to... Uh, revere or esteem something because all of us can honor things right I mean there's there's certain people in our lives or things that we honor we, we lift them up and 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 we we put a certain value on them and so Paul is saying honor honor your mother and, and father to show them your respect and love um, and also one of the commentators I liked he said because we always think that means honoring, okay, we obey what they say and, and we're kind and, and that's what we do. But um, one of the commentators, I liked what he said, he says, we can seek to bring honor to them by the way in which we live and walk. And isn't that true? With um, if you, We're going to talk about Proverbs in a little bit, mainly about the father and the instruction to the child. But when you read Proverbs, there's tons of instruction in there. And most of the time it will say, listen to your father's instruction. And it'll talk about, um, it'll make reference to the mother. And it'll say sometimes uh, that the mother, um, that you bring dishonor to the mother. So, you know, this, this idea of honor, it's not only obeying like just, you know, what they instruct us on, but it's the way in which you conduct your life, you know, as, as a child to, to your parent. You can, you can show them honor by the way in which you live. And then Paul says um, that honoring your father and mother is, um, it's the first command with promise. And, and so what I, what I put in my notes here is it's, there is blessing in obedience. And what did Paul say? He said, it will be well with thee and that you may live long, in verse 3. And this isn't necessarily a formula. Um, I think somebody, a child would want to read this and, and think, okay, this is an app, you know, this is automatic formula that I'm going to live, you know, to be 90. But the, the thought here is that the general principle is if you heed the instruction of your parents, the wisdom of your parents, 
that it's going to keep you from sin. It's going to keep you probably from some very dangerous situations in which maybe your life um, would not you know, be that long based on the choices you would make. So it's not an automatic, you know, saying every person that is obedient to their parents is going to live a long life. But in general principle, if you're heeding to the wisdom of your parents and, and taking that instruction and doing what they tell you to do, it's going to be well with you and you're probably going to live a whole lot longer than if you were left to your own devices. And next we move to the, the father to the child in Ephesians 6, 4, just one verse. Paul talks, and he says, And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't know if anything stands out to anybody right away there, and I'm not dogmatic about that because... In our the day in which we live is not you know the day in which Paul lived, but did you notice that he tells the fathers how it is they are to relate to the children? He mentions nothing about the mothers, and we're going to talk a little bit in Proverbs. Um, again, I challenge you just seek out and do a search in Proverbs, um, fathers, mothers, and children, and you will find a plethora of scriptures, and most of the time it's talking about instruction coming from the father, not so much from the mother. But I just found it very interesting that mothers were left out in this, and and I think for obvious reasons, because the fathers were the ones that um, were to take that that role in, in disciplining and instructing the child. And again, in Paul's day, the father had supreme authority. I mean, the father was the one, so I'm sure that's one of the reasons why in the text we see him uh, referring to fathers. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I just wanted to pull out four verses. You don't have to turn there. Um, there was many more, but I found four verses in Proverbs that talks about this child listening to the instruction of the father um, that I think are very f- uh, important to back up, uh, verse 4. So Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom? The Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Proverbs 4.1 says, Hear, ye children, the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. Proverbs 13.1, A wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. And then Proverbs 15.5, A fool despise his father's instruction, but he that regardeth reproof is prudent. So again, if you, if you want to do a study in Proverbs of, of you know, helps for uh, raising uh, your children, there, there are lots of uh, wise, practical scriptures that, that help you there. But I point these out because, again, in context, the father was the one that was supposed to do most of the disciplining, most of the instruction of uh, the children. And notice in verse 4, the father is not supposed to provoke his children to wrath. What does that mean? Well, provoke, as we know, can mean to anger or enrage. Um, Also, uh, I've heard it once said that fathers, when they're disciplining their children or correcting them that they should not be exasperating them. What does that mean? It means you, to intensely irritate them um, or maybe that you're just, for whatever it is you're trying to instruct them on, that maybe you're over and above what it calls for in that particular situation. Um, Colossians 3.21 talks about something very similar to verse 4. It says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And again, I'm not advocating that we don't discipline. Um, The Bible talks a lot about discipline, but it talks about discipline being done in the right manner and and, and in the right situation. But what I'm saying is the scripture is indicating that fathers potentially could not be disciplining their children in the right way and actually causing 
discouragement. Uh, so what are some practical things in context that fathers should not be doing to provoke their children? Um, they should, you know, sometimes fathers are, you know, rule, as we say, with an iron fist, and they're constantly exercising discipline and blame, but never taking time when uh, during the instruction process to praise them. Or maybe the father will say one thing and require that of the, the children in the home, but yet he does another thing. That can exasperate a child. That can discourage a child. Another thing is sometimes parents, fathers, can be very inconsistent and unfair in their discipline. And again, that's what I had talked about, that that possibly sometimes the discipline does not equal whatever it is that you're trying to correct the child for. But the important thing here is that the, the father should encourage, okay, not provoke, but he should encourage them, which was the opposite action required. What does Paul say? But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And um, when, when I check the, the nurture part, because I always think, you know, kind of a soft, you know, being really kind. Uh, but in the Greek, the, the meaning of the, the word nurture there is education or training to teach. Um, and the idea is learning through discipline. So it, it's not just, you know, being all soft. It, it it's, encompasses everything that, you know, the, the father is using the, the right discipline, is disciplining in the right way, and is doing it ultimately to, for the better of the child and not just to exercise discipline. And then Paul says, and do it in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the admonition there means calling attention. Again, the, the motive for the father is not, I am father, you know, listen to me. But as a father, the father's goal should be to raise the child in the ways of the Lord. Um, yes, the, the father's going to have to have rules, is going to need to discipline, but the, the ultimate thing in the back of the father's mind is he has to remember that, um, yes, he and his wife, they, um, you know, the Lord did, every, every birth is a miracle, so the, the, the wife conceives, has a child, um, and, you know, we love our children, but sometimes I think we can get very possessive of them because really we, we, we were partakers in that, but we, we didn't create that miracle. That was the Lord. They, they are all the Lord's children. So what we should be doing as parents and fathers is we should be, our, our first goal once we're saved is to try to get them into the hands of the Father, uh, direct them to the Lord. And, and that's why I think Paul says, bring them up in the nurture and, and admonition of the Lord. And again, in Paul's day, and when the circumstances allow it, in, in our day, I don't think God has changed. The Father is the one that should be spending most of the time doing the discipline. And, and when I say discipline, I'm not just always talking about corporal discipline. I'm talking about the instructing. I'm talking about the educating, the teaching, the sitting down with them, going through the word, showing them, you know, why it is what they did does not line up with God's word. So I just think that that is very important. So that's the child is obedient in the Lord to the parents. The parent, i.e. the father mainly, should not be provoking his child, but in love, he should be nurturing and, and have the goal of having that child grow up in the ways of the Lord. So then we move into verse 5, into, uh, 5 through 8, I will read, and this talks about the relationship, and this is from the viewpoint of the servant who I've called for our study, the Christian employee, uh, to his master. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, 
not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. So apparently in the Roman Empire, um, at, at this time, when I, I was doing a little um, research, you know, to, to kind of get an idea, that slavery was a very much an accepted institution. And um, there was an estimated, at the t- time of Ephesians, uh, approximately six million slaves in the Roman Empire um, as, as this was penned to the Ephesians. Now, as we know, whether it be slavery, whether any people group that has been, you know, um, through the course of time, you know, ostracized or not had a right place, it's always been the gospel over time that has brought uh, freedom uh, for that person. But I think it very interesting here, just uh, again, Roman Empire, six million slaves that in Paul's time, when he talks about this relationship, okay, we don't, we're not dealing with it in this fellowship here, probably, uh, you know, servants and masters and slaves, but in this time, slavery was accepted. Paul is not telling them or speaking directly out against slavery in this case. What he's saying is, Christian, this is how you should relate to your master, and I think that's very important. So, servant, in verse five, um, apparently, it it could literally be a slave. And again, at the time, there were lots of uh, slaves in the Roman Empire, so there could be two forms of a slave. You could either voluntarily subject yourself in in a slave master type relationship, or uh, obviously, there was a lot of involuntary um, slaves. Also, it, it takes on the connotation, if you, uh, a person would bind themselves to do service to another, then they were considered um, a servant in, in that case. And <coughs> it's very important here when you read uh, chapter 5, what, what, is, what does Paul say? He says that we are supposed to be servants of Christ, not man. And I put in my my little quotations here um, the master, the employer. Okay, whether they're believers or not, we are serving Christ, not the actual person or people or company that um, are overseers of us. And then you notice Paul says um, that the servants are supposed to be obedient that are your masters. And notice he says according to the flesh. Um, as, as, as I was reading, and in context, if you look at it, the in the flesh seems to mean that in this particular case, you, you know, Paul's saying, listen, you are a servant for whatever reason, however that came about, to your master, okay? That's your master according to the flesh. You have a job to do, you do it, um, you know, as unto Christ, but you do it. But it was only in the flesh that the master had the right, you know, to be over the servant, not in any way when it came to spiritual matters. You know, I think that's important, and I'll talk about it in a minute. I go to work. All of us uh, go to work. Um, We have bosses there. We as Christians should be working as unto the Lord, but they, they have a right because they pay us to say, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, but that's only in according to fleshly things. The thing that they never have a right to do is to take lordship over our spirit. And again, in context, it would seem like that's what Paul is saying when he says, according to the flesh. (coughs) I apologize, I got a little dry cough here yet. So, in verse 6, let's reread this. Not with eye service, okay, are the servants supposed to do it as men pleasers, the contrast, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So they are to serve the Lord, um, you know, from the heart. 
and and not with uh, in a singleness of heart, which means they were not to be self-seeking, and they were not supposed to do it with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ. What does that mean? Eye service in the Greek means that needs watching. The point is, as a Christian, when you're a Christian now and you're a worker, whether your boss or any of your coworkers see you, you you don't need that. Eye service means in the Greek that needs watching. I don't need watching. I work for the Lord. So I don't need to have a supervisor watching me or my coworker checking on me. And again, this is the this is Paul's words. He says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ. That's how we are to work. And the men pleasers there uh, means in the Greek means man courting, which I thought was an interesting word. You know, you're just courting. You know, like. You know, it's an old term that we obviously use when you were courting your girlfriend or, or uh, boyfriend. You know, you were courting that men pleaser. You know, you're doing you're doing what you're doing only to please man. You're not doing it from the heart, and you're not doing it um, as servants unto Christ. Paul says that's not how you um, are to be a servant when you're a Christian. And he said, doing the will of God from the heart. And what's the will? The will is. The, the decree, you know, we should be doing it from our heart. And the application here is, what is the motivation that you have um, when you're at work? Why do you do what you do? That's essentially what Paul is saying here. He said, you can't work for man, even though you have a master, according to the flesh. You can't work for man. You can't work just because man is watching you. You have to... Uh, you have to do it as though you're serving uh, Christ and doing the will of God from the heart. And, and Paul says in verse 7, he says, doing good is the will of God. He says, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to man. And again, you see him repeating this. He wants the Ephesian believers to know that, listen, your servants, yes, for whatever circumstance you're in, you're a servant to a master, and that master tells you what to do. And But you are no longer the old man. You are a new man, and you need to now do goodwill and service as to the Lord, not to, not to man. And, you know, essentially, because you're a Christian, in working, you shouldn't do less work now. Um, I, I've heard Pastor Dwight probably no less than 10 times in the last 20 plus years. I feel like I know him, but there was a gentleman in, in Appleton, and I know Pastor Dwight showed up years ago. I think it was a carpet store on Richmond Street, and he was, you know, found out he was a pastor and he was asking about this one gentleman, but I remember the boss of the place told Pastor Dwight, you know, that guy, he's the best worker. I mean, that's this is, as Christians, we should be the best worker. And again, why? Not because we're working for that master or that company, because let's face it, a lot of the companies or people we work for, they're not in Christ. Um, even on a good day, they don't have the values and the, the moral compass that we do. Um, we, we work because of the Lord, regardless of, of who they are and, and, and what they ask us to do. And I just think that that's a wonderful example. If we're doing it from the heart, the will of God, we should be the best workers. Um, and I won't be dogmatic about this, but I have had experience in the past where I have seen many Christians at work, and some of them, they would work like crazy, and some of them felt the need to uh, take the opportunity when they were being paid to do a job, and sometimes they would be doing some witnessing or they would not be working as much as they should. And it, it was very difficult because there were conversations sometimes that I would hear when other people would say, you know, this person calls themselves a Christian and they were, you know, maybe they were witnessing, which is great, but not when you're getting paid to do a job. And again, this, I'm not being dogmatic. I'm just telling you my personal 
um, situations that I've seen, it's done a lot of actual harm for the witness of that particular believer as opposed to the believer that's working unto the Lord, regardless of how his master or company is. He comes in, he does his job because he's working for the Lord, not, not that, that, that person. And he's going to be a good worker because he's working as unto the Lord, not to the man, not to the company, or not to you know, his master. So I think that's very important. And then what does Paul say? He says that the knowing that whatever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And I just, I put, there's somehow, some way the Lord is, is going to bless you and you're going to receive uh, the reward from the Lord. You might not ever be recognized by your master, by your company, by your co-workers. But again, if we're doing it from the right heart as unto the Lord, we don't have to worry about what the man um, or the institution or the company says because we are working for the Lord and we know that the Lord sees it. And the scripture tells us, whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he, shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. I believe what the word says. I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen for you. But the point is, the motivation for the submission of that servant to the master in this particular context is we do it from the heart as unto Christ doing the will of God. So that's servant. So now you're asking Masters, what are the masters supposed to do? Verse 9, Paul says, And ye masters, do the same things unto them, obviously referring to the servants, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there any respect of persons with him. So remember I talked earlier, wife, wives are supposed to submit to the husbands, husbands are to love like Christ loved the church and children and parents. And here it's saying, okay, masters, this is how you should be treating your servants. So he said, and ye masters, do the same things unto them. Well, what are the same things? Essentially, the servants are supposed to be good workers, right? We just read it in the text. They're supposed to work as unto the Lord, and they should be good workers. So Paul's basically saying, okay, masters, how about you? Um, you expect the very best from your workers, your servants. Are you going to give your servants your very best? Are you going to do the best you can for them? Uh, one of the things he said is, he said, forbearing, threatening. Um, also, another thing is, as a master, a believer, um, a boss, uh, owner of a company, are you going to be treating your workers fairly? Um, I have written down here, do not exploit them. As a Christian master, business owner, ja, uh, boss, Colossians 4.1 says, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. And again, I, I am... I am beating this over and over because I want us all to see that the, this idea of submission, people take it and they run with it and they just say, you have to do this because the word says submit. The, the point is, verse 21 says, submitting yourselves one to another. And the key there is in the fear of God. The point is, there are situations where we're Christian workers. We may have a boss that's a Christian. The, the point is, Yes, he is over you, he's the boss, he tells you what to do, but you should be obedient to him because of the Lord, and the master should be treating you in a certain way. There, there's a, you know, it goes both ways. And Paul specifically says that they should forbear threatening. So he's saying don't, don't use threats as a way of obedience for your master's. And then what does he say? He says, knowing that your master also is in heaven. So what is he saying there? He's saying, listen, your Lord is in heaven, 
and you you should be submitting as you should be submitting to the Lord. You should be submitting. You know, you have to be submitted to the Lord so you can treat your your servants um, in the right way. Um, just to kind of summar, <coughs> summarize this particular thing, I wanted to read just a very uh, short commentary from Warren Wiersbe on this. Um, it's just titled, He Must Be Submitted to the Lord, Ephesians 6, 9. Your master also is in heaven. This is practicing the lordship of Christ. The wives submit to her own husband as unto the Lord, Ephesians 5.22. And the husband loves the wife as Christ also loved the church, Ephesians 5.25. Children obey their parents in the Lord, Ephesians 6.1. And parents raise their children in the nurturance and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. Servants are obedient as unto Christ, Ephesians 6.5. And masters treat their servants as their master in heaven would have them do. Each person in submission to the Lord <coughs> has no problem submitting to those over him. Jesus said the way to be a ruler is first to be a servant in Matthew 25, 21. The person who is not under authority has no right to exercise authority, which I thought was a great way to, to kind of uh, cap off verse 9, what Paul is telling the masters who are believers. He's saying, listen, you, you have to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ before you can in any way try to exercise authority because if you're under the lordship, then you're going to exercise that position or that authority you have in the right manner. The same way the parent is not going to provoke the child because if he's under the lordship of Jesus Christ, he's, he's not going to be disciplining in an inappropriate way. He's going to be doing it the way the Lord wants him to do it. So we just got done with the, the second and third of the three relationships. And now, essentially from verse 9 to verse 10, even though it's, it's one verse apart, it's a total change of thought. Okay, Paul spent all this time talking about one body, the new man, walking in love, walking in the light. Talks about the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the joy, thankfulness, and, and then moves into submission and talks about the relationships. But it changes uh, uh, very swiftly here in verse 10. Again, let's remember, Paul's penning this letter. Um, I, I have no idea you know, what he was thinking, how much time he had left, but he is wanting to finish out this letter to the Ephesians. And he, so he makes a, a big shift in thought, and he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Um, <clears throat> I think the important thing to note here is he's wanting to encourage the brethren um, in uh, Ephesus, those who are in Christ. And he says, be strong in the Lord. Um, you know, it's very simple there, but I think it needs to be said. He recognized that they had to be strong in the Lord, not in themselves, not in one another. They had to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And I think this um, is a great lesson for us. But Paul, everything that he had seen and everything that he had done, he realized that it was through Christ and by Christ that he did uh, everything that he did. In uh, Philippians 4.11, he said, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. So Paul is passing along to the Ephesians, again, with this big shift. He's saying, listen, I don't have much time here to write. I'm going to be wrapping this up. You need to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And essentially, I wrote down here, Paul was giving them the scriptures we're going to read. He was giving them a spiritual playbook, okay? And he uses the imagery of a soldier and the armor. But he's going to be giving them, he talked about a lot of practical issues, a lot of foundational truths. But now he's talking to them spiritually what they're going to need to continue. And um, again, he said, according to the Lord's might, our power is nothing uh, we need to seek and rely solely on the Lord's might, and, and that's what Paul was pointing to. 
So what does he say in verse 11? He says, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I'd never seen this before because I always thought about, you know, I've read this over and over and I always thought about, okay, the armor, putting on the armor, but I had never noticed um, this until I read the commentary that this is actually, we need to realize this is the armor that we're putting on is God's armor. The scripture says, put on the whole armor of God. This isn't anything that man has created. I mean, it's all spiritual, but this is the Lord's armor. And he says, why are we to do it? That we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And again, the put on, I've talked about this in an earlier study. It means like putting on a garment. So we are to array or clothe ourselves with this armor. And Barnes had said, uh, when he talks about the whole armor of God, he said it means the whole armor of God. Every bit of God's armor we can't leave one part of it out. We have to put all of it on. And he, and he said it, it includes the complete armor, both the offensive and the defensive armor. And then um, this little word stand here, he says we're to put on the whole armor that we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, which we'll talk about in a second. But that stand... Um, I like the Greek, it says to hold up. I mean, that's what you do, right? Sometimes you're standing, you're holding something up. He said, obviously he knows that they're going to go, be going through a lot of uh, spiritual warfare, a lot of combat with the enemy. So he's saying, put on this whole armor that you can stand, that you can hold up against the wiles of the devil. And again, the wiles of the devil, um, it, it means trickery. Um, I, I wrote down here, the devil's methods are his means, plans, and schemes that he uses to deceive, entrap, enslave, and ruin the souls of men. And again, we need to remember, sometimes the enemy is overt and just comes right out, but you know, plans and schemes and trickery, this isn't something that is just very blatant. So we have to really make sure that we are sifting through, you know, what we are seeing around us, filter through um, the Lord and the Word of God to make sure that we are not being taken in by His schemes and His trickery. And so Ephesians six twelve, who is it that we wrestle against? Paul tells us, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And this wrestle means, obviously, was probably taken from the, those times in Roman when they literally were wrestling, but it's a struggle. It's a fight. In the Greek, it's, the wrestling is a combat. So he's saying, listen, you're going to, this is what you're wrestling against, not flesh and blood. So man in and of himself, really should not be the target of our combat. I mean, we get frustrated. We see things in the media. We see things that are going on in our country, across the world, that frustrate us. Um, But our fight, our struggle, our combat is not necessarily with those people. Paul, Paul says, it's not flesh and blood, but it's against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness. We're going to go through the armor very quickly here, but we need to remember, I'm not excusing any of these people, but we need to remember that this is where our combat is not necessarily against any one person or movement. It is against the principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world that control this world. And you know, forgive me if it's not a good example, but two people that came to my mind when I thought about this, you know, just Hitler and Charles Manson. We all know what they did. Hitler led a, a, a country in, into atrocities, you know, that the world has, has uh, rarely seen. Charles Manson, most people know what went on there. Um, and then in modern day, we can look at the, the left of the liberal agenda, whatever it might be. These people in and of themselves, yes, they were evil. But 
you know, Hitler and Charles Manson, if you check on them, both of them were in, in some ways dabbling and influenced by the occult. It is the powers and principalities that work in these people. And, and again, I'm not excusing them. I'm just saying we need to make sure our combat is not being spent, you know, you know, hours and hours talking about this one person. We need to put on the spiritual armor and be prepared to uh, combat the principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness. So, the armor. Uh, Ephesians six thirteen through 17, we'll go through this very quickly. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Again, the whole armor of God, Paul says, that you might be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girded, about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Again, the spiritual armor, you could, you could probably do a study on each of the spiritual armor, but in context, what I want us to see, and notice how, how many times it talked about uh, standing um, and taking on the whole armor of God. Withstand means to stand against, obviously, and again, stand we talked about to hold up. Um, the truth. The believer must be controlled by the truth, having your loins girt about with truth, in verse 14. So we must be controlled by truth, Who's the enemy? The enemy is a liar. And in those times, this whole armor of God, there was a girdle, and the girdle held all the other parts of the armor on as that soldier was going out for combat. Well, isn't that what the Word of God does? The point is, we have to have this. This is our compass right here. We have the truth. So as we exercise using the other uh, parts of the armor of God, we have to be girded about with the truth. The enemy's a liar. Our weapon is truth. The breastplate. And he says, in having on the breastplate of righteousness. What was the breastplate in the Roman times? It was the soldier was covered from the neck down to the waist in a heavy metal. Okay? That was to fend off the attacks from the enemy. Well, Satan is what? He's the accuser of the, uh, br the brethren, us. He attacks us. But the breastplate of righteousness, what is the righteousness that we have? We have the righteousness of Christ. And what does the righteousness of Christ do? The Satan accuses us, but the righteousness of Christ assures us of our salvation. So whenever you have those attacks coming at you, he's the accuser. It's not from the Lord. Our righteousness is in Christ. That assures us. So that's the breastplate. Then we have the shoes of the gospel. Uh, back in those times, the Romans had sandals, you know, nothing like the nice shoes we have. They had sandals, and then they put these, like, types of nails on the bottom of the sandal. That was so when they were in battle, they had better footing. Okay, so we, we need to have good footing as we're in the battle. If we're witnessing to someone or, you know, whatever warfare we're in, the shoes of the gospel. We need to have the gospel and we need to take the gospel of peace wherever we go. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then he moves into the helmet of salvation. Above all, uh, or 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Well, what does the helmet do? Well, the helmet protects the head, right? The head, you know, you get one, one uh, wound to the head and it could be over. Well, what does the enemy do? Anybody who has been in any type of a struggle, even when you're sick, I was talking to uh, someone a couple weeks ago, and you know, I had a hard time when I was going through COVID uh, trying to pray or pick up the word because you're weak. Well, what does the enemy do? What does the enemy do? He attacks the mind. He's going for the head. He's going for the mind. Well, our mind needs to be controlled by, by God. So that's why we need to have the helmet of salvation. We have salvation. And then the sword of the Spirit. Obviously, the sword of the Spirit is the uh, word of God, and that's an offensive weapon. And then Paul finishes <coughs> up and uh, makes another transition here. He says, you know, 
get ready. You need the whole armor of God. He lists what the armor is, and he says also, while you're doing this, pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So I've titled this, The Prayer is the Soldiers, in our case, the Believers, Energy Needed for the Combat. Whenever we're supposed to pray, he says, pray always. And he says, we, we should be uh, with all prayer and supplication. Supplication is, um, it's two Greek words. The first Greek word just means basically a petition or a request. And then when you dig down farther, it comes from another Greek word, which means to beg or beseech, which has uh, even greater strength. And what are we supposed to do? He says, we're supposed to be watching. We are supposed to keep awake to be sleepless in our prayer. And we are supposed to persevere. Persevere just means persistency, being constantly diligent in prayer in the battle. And then Paul says, okay, this is the lifeblood. The prayer is your, your energy needed you know, for putting on this armor and fighting the battle. He says, praying always, and he says, with all perseverance, who were they supposed to pray for? For all the saints. And look at Paul asks for me. He says, and pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. This just blows me away that everything that Paul has gone through I know Pastor Dwight touched on it last week, uh, uh, talking about the, uh, Paul, and there were times when he had the fear because the Lord said, don't fear Paul. But everything he's gone through and he's done, and he's asking the Ephesians, he's sitting in house arrest, not knowing what his future will bring. He's writing, he's seen, and pray for me that, I, that he might be um, given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly, I've never known Paul not to be bold. He's saying, please pray for me that my mouth would be bold to make known the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I think this is a great example for Paul for knowing the necessity of prayer. After everything he's been through, he's asking the Ephesians that he would still, right up to the end, that he would be bold and proclaim the truth. An application I have here is, how, how do we do as a fellowship praying for our pastor and our leadership? Um, there are not many in the Christian community locally or nationally that are willing to be bold in these times, uh, especially with COVID. Um, you know, there is a lot of spiritual warfare. So I, I think this is, you know, if, if Paul is asking for prayer at the end of his ministry after everything he's gone through, and he's asking for boldness that, that a door would be open. Um, how much more should we, as a fellowship, be praying constantly for our leadership and for our pastor here? Because there is a lot of spiritual warfare, I'm sure, that we do not not even understand, and especially when you're bold and you take a stand. Um, and then let's just finish Paul's final greeting as he's wrapping this up after everything he's told the Ephesians. He's saying, pray always, pray for me. He says, but that you may also know my affairs, how I do. Tychius, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. So he, this letter was penned in Rome and this Tychius is going to be bringing it to the Ephesians. And he says in verse 22, Whom I have sent unto you for the same purposes, that you might know our affairs, and that, you might, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So let's look to Lord and pray. Father, Lord, it's uh, a little sobering to read the end of Paul's uh, letter, charge to the Ephesians. Lord, but there is so much love and so much grace. He has the heart of the Ephesian believers to tell them how to live as Christians in the new man, how to walk in the light 
and he wants to encourage them for the spiritual battle that they're um, going to be in. And at the end, he's asking humbly for prayer and encouraging them to pray. And it's important, Lord, for him that the Ephesians would know how he is doing. This is just, Lord, such a, a beautiful letter, an encouraging letter. And I pray that we can take practical application from the words that we heard tonight. And again, if we believe your word, we know these words are inspired. They are, they are life. They are alive. And we ask that you uh, work in our hearts and just help us to grow. And we give you all the praise and all the glory, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.